You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me at the end of another big week in the energy markets is ITK Principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well. I'm well, thanks very much, Giles. And we've uh, got a great guest to help us navigate uh, some of the uh, latest information that's uh, out there and... uh, uh, Yes. Well, that's right. This week has seen the release of the Integrated System Plan. This is the monumental two-year work of the Australian Energy Market Operator. Uh, The Integrated System Plan, of course, is its 20 or now 30-year, I see, blueprint um, to sort of manage the green energy transition, which is accelerating right before our eyes. Joining us as David says to help navigate that is um, Alan Ray or Alan Rye. Alan, thanks for joining us. Um, I... I don't think I got your um, uh, surname pronounced properly, did I? The, the you were right on the on the second go, Giles. So on the second go, well, I do apologise for that. And um, look, you're with Baringa Partners. Um, I think you're sort of head of their practice on the electricity grid transition. I guess that's um, the right person to be talking to um, today. And we do thank you for joining us. Just briefly, then, what is the big standout point for you of the ISP that's been released this week? The main thing is the fact that AMO is planning for decarbonisation. Um, in the past ISPs, the 2020 ISP, the inaugural one, they had various scenarios about technology uptake, um, uh, zero emissions, clean energy technology uptake, but there wasn't an anchor, a climate anchor in as strong a way as there is under the 2022 ISP. Each of the scenarios achieved net zero uh, in the 2022 ISP, and what differentiates them is the carbon, the global warming or the carbon budget that that scenario is seeking to achieve or to be aligned to, and that's really a first for AMO and really for any system planner in the history of the NEM to be so explicit about anchoring decarbonisation and global warming to their System well, that's right. You let, um, let's not forget that um, the national electricity objective actually doesn't include environment. So none of these people are actually supposed to be under the rules of the, of the rules of the game, be thinking about climate and environment, which is perfectly ridiculous, as many people have said. Um, Alan, the um, step change scenario, which is now accepted as the most likely scenario and is the basis of their planning document now, um, is aligned to around two degrees, I think, just sort of as, as much as you can kind of sort of put this in the global context of what, you know, it would be Australia's fair share and how the decarbonisation of the grid then sort of feeds through to, um, to the decarbonisation of other sectors. It has a target or it assumes a target of about 83% renewables by 2030. We're at 30% now. This happens to be as well Labor's target. I don't know whether Labor just piggybacked on the back of the uh, draft ISP. Do you think that is actually achievable, though, in the time frame that we've gotten with all that we must do? Look, it's certainly very, very uh, ambitious. Um, and 
almost with each passing day, the the level of ambition required to achieve those numbers you quoted um, grows. Um, the social license issues, the supply chain uh, issues that would be needed to you know mobilize those resources uh, appear very challenging. Um, so I, I am an optimist. I wouldn't say it's uh, it's certainly uh, not going to happen, but I would say that it, it is very challenging. And what it does indicate is that there's a need to really crack on and get on with it um, and do more sooner because we can't do as much later in this decade. Yeah. David, I'd like to maybe throw to you and, and what stood out for you in your sort of um, review of the ISP? Well, I think one of the things that Alan had mentioned to me previously that uh, the ISP actually shows a lot of demand growth. One of the features of the national electricity market over the past decade is that electricity consumption has been uh, declining slightly or flat. Uh, but now electrification, essentially, that is making cars electric and also electrification of heat processes and industry is expected to see uh, demand growth. Uh, and, you know, 40% by, I think, uh, 2000 and uh, anyway, about 2.5% a year, 2.4% a year compound, which is uh, enough to justify a lot of stuff. Alan, you know, uh, do we need more policy to actually progress? I mean, what, what, in your opinion, are the things that need to happen to at least crack on with it, whether we achieve the actual ISP um, numbers or not? I think we need essentially governments to now lean in uh, and lean in more heavily than they have been doing. The, the economist in me would say that policy and markets and... Um, uh, those channels and those levers are, are, are the best for the long term. The, the challenge with that is just one of timing and the fact that the the policy, the framework itself takes time and then changing that framework is also not a quick process. Um, so this really is the decade that we need to move on uh, and, and decarbonize heavily against if, we ha if we're going to have a shot of achieving net zero economy-wide by 2050. The electricity sector has to go first, and they have to get to its own net zero by, you know, by around 2040 or so. And to do that really requires governments to step in um, whilst we get the policy settings right. So there's a couple of things. Firstly, I know Beringa does its own price forecasting, of course, uh, as does ITK in its own minor way. But broadly speaking, if the ISP plan roughly turns out as forecast in step change. Do you think that electricity prices uh, will change very much from um, what they used to be? <laughs> and prices go up or down, but, you know, uh, we used to be talking about prices comfortably at the wholesale level under $100 megawatt dollars a megawatt hour, you know, typically down around, say, 50, 60. Yeah. Do you think that's achievable under the ISP? I think so over the long term. One of the... One of the fundamental issues in the NEM is that we need to replace our coal fleet. Um, and we would need to do that whether we had a decarbonisation objective in mind or not. We have a fleet that's ageing that was largely built in the 70s and 80s as Australia industrialised. And so there's a need to replace that fleet regardless of whether we're achieving net zero or, or um, putting that to one side altogether. The question, therefore, is what is the cheapest way to replace that fleet? Um, and 
by all accounts, the, the cheapest way to do that is through renewables for energy and then a mixture of technologies for firming, battery storage, pumped hydro, but also some long duration firming in, in, in the form of new build gas, whether that's gas for, from from uh, natural gas or hydrogen remains to be determined, but that's the mix of technologies we need. And that what that essentially means is that prices do need to rise. Um, they're going to rise anyway. I guess that's the key message I wanted to leave with your listeners uh, because we need to re- um, replace the, the current fleet. The question is, what is the set of technologies that would limit that rise? And from what we can see, that's firm renewables. So I, I, do I put it slightly differently. I say that consumers have to pay for the costs of replacing the fleet and one of those costs will be that uh, if we do it right, there will be surplus capacity that has to be paid for uh, it, that we build before we close the old capacity down. It doesn't have to be consumers that pay directly, though, does it? It can be uh, uh, subsidies of one kind or another that pick that up, as, for instance, with the New South Wales Eltessa scheme, where any payments that the New South Wales government makes to generators that, are, uh, that they can't recover from they'll, they'll pass on to uh, the distribution companies. That's right. That, that whole idea of building ahead of closure is an important one, and it's a it's a nuance that is often lost on many. That uh, to minimise the volatility and the the price shock, we do need to be able to build the capacity slightly ahead of time. Um, but then the question, of course, is that the the challenge for investors in that capacity would be uh, that they would be entering a market and adding to oversupply until those coal plants exit. So how do we resolve the lack of money, the missing money? Certainly government support can be one way to do that. That's what I think. And I'll hand back to Charles in just a minute, but I've got two more things I want to get through. The first one is uh, Beringa for sure sees uh, lots and lots of investors uh, or potential investors uh, what would you say is top of investors' mind last at the moment? In, in, firstly, about their general attitudes towards getting projects on, and secondly, what roadblocks they see to actually doing investment right now. And, and let's leave the supply chain out because everyone faces that problem, right? It's hard to get a wind turbine. It's hard to get a solar panel. But let's just imagine that away right now. Yep. I would say that the general investor view is one of hope, um, and that's – a, a good place to start, and, and that, and that um, optimism and hope comes from a few quarters, including uh, the uh, federal government's commitment to a 43% economy-wide reduction on emissions by 2030. Uh, the, the, within that, certainly some investors focus on specific schemes like the Altessa program you mentioned, David, in New South Wales. Others are focused on renewable energy zones uh, in Queensland and in Victoria. I think in general, what the state governments are up to is what investors are keenly watching. Um, and then uh, there's, you know, uh, beyond that, um, technology uh, uh, areas such as battery storage and is it two-hour batteries or four-hour batteries, et cetera. Um, but- and batteries versus pumped hydro, all that stuff. But, I mean, in the past, um, um, uh, and, and clearly, the price signal for new investment is obviously there at the moment. It's a question of what the price will be in a couple of years' time. And, and I guess most people uh, forecast current conditions to moderate. But 
uh, we all tend to think that they won't moderate. Maybe there'll still be something going on. The thing that I think you have specific expertise in is stuff like the RIT and the transmission process. Uh, in my mind, uh, I've got two things around that. One, the RIT, even if I look at the recent New South Wales, um, uh, Southwest New South Wales process that's gone on, that's just got up to, it's taken two years to get approval for $190 million worth of CapEx that involves a, a transmission line and, and a battery in Southwest New South Wales. And we still haven't started building it. So it just seems to me that process is all too slow. And I wondered what you thought about that. And secondly, one of the, the big things about this is the debate about Marinus Link uh, and whether it needs to go ahead or not. I mean, in, in the work that you do, uh, do you see Marinus Link as, as, as being something that would is nice to have or pretty much essential to have? Uh, yeah, on the second one, David, I can answer that first. So yes, we see Marinus Link as essential. Uh, and it's essential really to the mainland, to Victoria. It provides the firming that Victoria loses once it's uh, the bulk of its coal fleet exit. There's a lot of talk about offshore wind in Victoria uh, as providing some of that replacement capacity and energy. And certainly there is a role for offshore wind in Victoria, but a lot of it, the firming comes uh, from other sources, from other regions into Victoria. And Battery of the Nation, enabled by Marinus Link, is key to uh, keeping the lights on in Victoria. The first one, um, your question about the regulatory investment test, the, the RIT, it is slow. Uh, uh, there's no doubt about that. And uh, even the ESB has made some changes to that process. The, the challenge is, is that process, uh, even with those changes, fast enough to achieve the investment we need this decade? I, I keep coming back to that point that this decade is the decade that we have to um, seek, the, seek the most amount of changes in. Just because for every day, every week of inaction and delay, it just makes the challenge so much harder for us as, as a country um, beyond uh, the 2030 period. It just leaves more and more for that, for that end. And the adjustment is too hard. We've got to remember that there are other sectors, <laughs> as hard as it might seem, in electricity, it's actually one of the easiest sectors to decarbonize. We've still got to tackle agriculture uh, and heavy industry. And if we think the challenges in the NEM are too great, then we aren't at all in a good place when it comes to those other sectors. So that's why, for me, the urgency here means that we put you know, the policy to one side and uh, we still work on it, but it's not the key means by which we achieve uh, faster build out and faster change. Uh, thank you very much, Alan. Look, before I ask my questions, we might just take a small break. JetCharge is the largest EV charging infrastructure company in Australia. Operating nationwide, JetCharge has spent the last decade providing hassle-free EV charging services to thousands of businesses and EV drivers. JetCharge also specialises in helping maximise your use of renewable energy and the leaders in vehicle-to-grid integrated solutions. From home charger installations to the largest EV charging projects in Australia, JetCharge is paving the way for an electric future together. 
Alan, um, you mentioned before the um, the uh, the change in government or sort of the government support. I mean, how significant is the fact that we do now actually have a new government that rather than sort of dismissing the whole ISP as lines to nowhere and showing absolutely no interest in it at all, um, it actually sort of stood up on the very same day and said this is a very fine document and we'll be um, looking at it and following it. It's critical, uh, in short. the Whilst it's true that energy is largely a state jurisdiction in Australia, and, and, and different from other countries, the Commonwealth does still have a lot of influence and power within energy. It helps to coordinate the states. It, it really is the only voice at the energy minister's table that can bring states together and, and can rise above the parochial, at times parochial or state-based interests. And it's also key to getting the nation-building infrastructure like Marist Link. You know, part of the issue with Marist Link has been cost allocation between Tasmania and the mainland, who should pay in essence. And the Commonwealth can, can through its central role, uh, ensure that the arguments don't get bogged down along state boundaries and rise above that. So, and, and we haven't even spoken about climate. We're, we're just talking specifically about electricity here. Uh, mm. So in short, critical. You also talked about sort of the, um, about policies and Maybe we don't need them, but I'm really interested in the role that distributed energy um, is um, seem to be playing here under the AEMO roadmap um, in this step change. I mean, a large part of the storage um, that they see is necessary. I think it's 46 gigawatts and 31 of gigawatts of that will come from distributed energy, uh, which includes rooftop solar, uh, sorry, um, rooftop um, household batteries, localised batteries, virtual power plants, electric vehicles and things like that. Um, are we ready for that? Um, is the, uh, can, can, can the grid cope with that? Or do we need a, a, a quick rethink of um, how we can incentivise that and make sure that um, you know, the value stack, as people describe them, can, can be rewarded appropriately? I should clarify, Giles, when I mentioned that policy wasn't critical, I, I, what I meant to say was that it's not the way to achieve timely decarbonisation. It's still important for the longer term. But when time is off the essence, yes. um, there are other... Shoot, shoot, shoot first and ask questions <laughs> later. I'm, I'm increasingly off that view, David. It feels like we need to sort of... Uh, analysis paralysis is what's um, holding us back in many ways. But uh, to, to your question, Giles, certainly the network at the distribution level isn't currently set up to handle and enable those two-way flows that will be an inevitable part of increased DER uptake. Um, there's a there's a system or, or, or a physical uh, constraint to that, uh, but there's also one around the the policy and the regulatory framework to enable that. Um, you know, people are aware about the the network challenges that they need to upgrade the networks, the the transformers to enable those flows um, to go up and down uh, the network. Um, but there's also as critical a need to work on um, ways to integrate DER from a policy perspective. Um, the, the work that's being done around distribution system operators and distributed markets to, as you say, to create the, the revenue stack in order to invest mm -hmm. in storage. Mm -hmm. Residential storage is a critical part of the ISP that they see the DER piece, it's often, the ISP is often critiqued as being just a transmission story and that um, it misses uh, or, or there's a risk of overbuilding the transmission network because we could achieve potentially the same 
decarbonisation outcomes at the distribution level, in my view, that argument is misplaced and um, doesn't take into account the fact that AEMO does a pretty uh, sophisticated and complicated job of modelling what is the uptake required at the distribution level. Um, Alan, I, I think it's, I want to put in a plug. We have advertising plugs, but I want to put in a plug for all the work that AEMO did on this modelling and to the modelling team, uh, people like Nicola Falcon. Uh, I mean, anyone who wants to read, reads the background on the amount of work that is actually done in producing these forecasts, the complexity of the models, but, uh, the, but meant that the fact that the complexity is both accounted for and managed uh, very, very thoroughly. I don't know what you think, Alan, but oh, it would be yeah. very hard for anyone in the private sector to do the work to that same standard. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, I would concur with all of that. It's um, critical work that, that isn't uh, being done really to the same level globally. Um, and then within Australia, I couldn't think of anyone else who could do this role as well as they do. I'm interested in just testing these other, um, uh, the, the, um, the step change scenario is considered the most likely now by 50%, but what was really interesting was that there was another near 20% who thought things were going to transition even more quickly, even now, and they looked at the hydrogen superpower scenario, and there's still more people who think that that'll probably become a central scenario within a couple of years. One of the principal reasons being is that the step change scenario actually assumes that there is actually no green hydrogen um, production of any significance, either domestically or for export between now and 2050. Now, unless Andrew Forrest and uh, CWP and Intercontinental and all the other people, BP and what have you, got things terribly wrong, there surely will be green hydrogen of some scale at some stage. That will then push wind and solar to even greater um, deployment, assuming we've got the transmission in line for that, and even greater, um, a, a speedier transition. Coal under that scenario already completely gone by 2032 rather than 2042. Um, extraordinary, um, extraordinary amounts of storage required, extraordinary amounts of distributed energy. How, how, tell me how you think about that hydrogen superpower scenario and how likely you think it might be um, that in a couple of years' time that becomes the central scenario. Yeah, certainly, Giles. So I think the first thing I'd say is there are uh, hydrogen projections within the step change scenario. It's just that 2040 or from 2040 is when the hydrogen uptake starts in earnest under step change, whereas hydrogen superpower sees that takeoff of hydrogen demand much earlier and then, of course, to a much greater degree, an order of magnitude greater than the hydrogen demand projections under step change. I think for me, the, the issue with the hydrogen superpower scenario and when I say issue, I mean the its weakest link is the pace of coal closures. Um, we are talking about, you know, very rapid coal closures in the 2020s. And when I talk to banks and lenders, their main concern with the ISP, both step change and, and especially hydrogen superpower, is that the the challenges in states where there's a high degree of government ownership. States like Queensland and Tasmania. Are we talking about Queensland here? We are. <laughs> very, very, uh, very direct, David, as always. I love it. Um, and, and that's the challenge is, to, you know, the 1.5 degree hydrogen superpower, there's a, it's a, it's a three-legged stool. There's increased renewables, increased transmission and reduced coal clo and accelerated coal closures. You, you need all three together. The increased renewables and transmission help to supply the, zero emissions electrified demand. 
and then you need the coal closure piece to achieve the carbon budget. Um, and and that is and it's that third leg that is of most critique. Um, I think that on the demand side, people can get behind the fact that hydrogen can be a force uh, to the to, to the to, or a phenomenon to, to the extent that hydrogen superpower projects it to be. Certainly, like offshore wind, hydrogen continues to surprise on the upside in Australia. Um, and and so people can kind of get behind that. What they struggle with is the is the coal closure schedule. Yeah, because we have and and you know there is no policy again or no firm dates. What we see is that coal plants are less reliable essentially than people assumed, which is unsurprising at the end of their life, and that they are closing uh, early more or less in line with the step change but there's still this uncertainty about how much coal will be around and that uncertainty then leads to investment uncertainty about how soon you need to make new investments uh, I, I think that's clear that it would be helpful if to have more direction from people who own coal generation about when they expect to close Alan I wanted to come back to the role of the ESB and the sort of things they've been going on about it seems uh, and I'm going to be leading here and say that it seems to me that a capacity market uh, is is not shouldn't be priority one. Priority one should be getting the bulk energy uh, actually built, the wind and the solar, uh, and and the things that uh, are needed for that, like the transmission and the RIT and and whatever other policies before we turn around uh, and and do the insurance side of things. Uh, you know, which is which which would be the capacity market, and even then it should be more of a affirming market for for renewable uh storage how how's Beringa seen it or how are you seeing it yeah i i think at at the at the highest level very much along those lines giles i think we often get bogged down in details or questions about market design but we should think of market design as the cart and the horse being the system the, the 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 mixture of generation technologies that we want in australia over the next two to three to four decades, you know, that's the question we need to start with. What what sort of generation mix do we want? And the answer there is, of course, a highly renewables one. Thank you, because we need to decarbonize the system to achieve net zero. And then, the, and it's cheaper. And it's exactly coming back to my point about needing to replace those aging coal plants. We have to replace them anyway. Um, so, what's the cheapest way to replace them? And it happens to be that the cheapest sources are also clean and green. So we get. We get our cake and we can eat it too on that front. The question, therefore, is, well, um, what market design changes, if any, do we need for what I call the dunkelflout capacity, the capacity that, that runs when so, we have... So just, be, just, be, just before we get to the dunkelflout, and I'm sorry to uh, interrupt the flow there, but, but what about increasing the RE, RET target, for instance? Do you have a you know an off-the-cuff thought about that? I think... Personally, my view is the voluntary demand is so great now that we don't need a target. In fact, I've, I've said to a few people that the path of least resistance is to extend the LRET beyond 2030 by setting a target of zero for the regulated demand. And, and the reason I say that is because the, 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 the value of extending the LRET is the LGC. It's the certificate. It's the certification of renewables, which we know is going to be really important for us post-2030 for those hydrogen electrolyzer loads that are claiming to be green, for those um, CNI customers who are claiming to have 
to achieve net zero by reducing their scope to emissions by the electricity purchase. Yeah, so you, you could use it. For, you should could use them against the safeguard scheme with a with a legislative uh, slip of the pen. Well, I mean, the, the safeguards, the fungibility with ACUs would certainly give an additional channel for demand. Um, but even there, it doesn't have to be that way. We, we could probably have a discussion for, for for quite some time on this very point. But just to summarise the Beringa view. The bringer view is that we have value to renewables, green value, post-2030, not because the yield rate is extended, but because the voluntary demand endures. Um, and the voluntary demand comes from CNI customers, state governments buying renewable energy to reduce their scope to emissions, and in some cases, buying more than 100% renewables with the excess used to offset their scope one and or scope three. And so that voluntary demand is an order of magnitude greater than the regulated demand and is therefore the basis for my comment that we don't need to set the target any higher. We just need to continue the certificate scheme because uh, there's really more of an accounting benefit that that would provide. Um, Can we just maybe just wrap up? I know you're pushed for time, Alan, and we're probably right at the end of it, though. But just sort of clarify, if it's not a capacity market, then um, do you sort of agree with this idea of having this sort of flexibility mechanism um, and, and and how do we actually get that? Because I'm struggling to find very many people outside of the coal industry and some members of the ESB who actually support this idea that they're putting through with the capacity market. It seems to me that the overwhelming majority of people are against it and are looking for something better and more suited to the future. Well, it's easy to forget that we have existing soft-style capacity mechanisms on foot at the moment. There's one you might have heard of, the Retailer Reliability Obligation. Mm. That, that one is essentially asking retailers to buy enough contracts to, um, to hedge their load. And, and it's really the load-serving entities, the retailers, who, uh, who, who would be required to determine what sort of capacity is, is, is most valuable to them. Because when it's dark and still, retailers still have to manage their load and still have to hedge their load. Mm -hmm. So the retail reliability obligation, you know, essentially the difference between an RRO and a, and a capacity market is who determines the capacity that's to be built. Mm. Is it retailers and load serving entities? Is it, is it market participants or is it the market operator? But that answer, the, the question isn't answered in one and not answered in the other. It's just answered by different people. And, and so we can draw on the existing arrangements to as the basis, as a philosophical basis, that the philosophical view here being that the load-serving entities are the ones who are likely best placed to make those decisions. Um, to answer these questions about Dunkelflat capacity and what's needed going forward. Mm. Alan, um, it's probably the um, subject of a uh, another half-hour discussion, actually, because it's a fascinating one and a very important one, I think, because it uh, worries me that we have that, um, on Indeed. one hand, this fantastic plan put forward by um, AEMO, which kind of set, lays out a roadmap to the future, and um, yet we've still got a bollard or two in the way um, that seems to be complicating matters unnecessarily. And, and Giles, not enough policy uh, to actually achieve the ISP. We've got a wonderful plan with the ISP that most of us agree would decarbonise the electricity system, would enable the lights to stay on and would leave prices largely unchanged in the longer term from what Australian industry and households are used to. 
And why can't we get enough policy to actually make this plan come true? The best plan, as Alan says, that or the most thoroughly designed uh, system plan that probably exists in the world right now. Um, uh, you know, it just needs the policymakers uh, over and beyond the New South Wales and Victorian government to, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, do their part of the job. Well, there you go. Then that's an invitation for the Federal Energy Minister, Chris Bone, to enjoy to join us on this uh, podcast very soon. Look, Alan, I do want to thank you for uh, joining us at short notice and sort of squeeze in between some very important uh, appointments um, of yours. So Thanks, thank you very much for joining us. Um, thank you, David, as usual. Thanks to everybody listening out there. Thanks, to, of course, to our sponsors. Um, and uh, we'll be back again this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.